This month, The Spectator becomes the first magazine in history to print 10,000 issues, and we'd like to celebrate with you. Subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of commemorative Spectator gin, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week, with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, we take a look at the exceptional nature of coronomics and what comes after. We also take a look at Sweden, where things are done a little bit differently. And at the very end, I talk to someone who's very used to solitude, explorer Jeff Wilson. First... In this week's cover article, Kate Andrews writes about the absurdity of coronomics, pointing out how this economic slowdown is unlike any other. She's also joined in the magazine and on the podcast now by the former FT editor Lionel Barber in his first article since stepping down. Kate, let's start with you. Can you tell us about the absurdity of coronomics? Coronomics is this new study of economics that has been forced upon us because of COVID-19, and it's like nothing we've ever seen before. We've had recessions, depressions, crashes, really bad ones, but unlike these instances that came before, now you have a scenario where you can't stimulate the economy as you once would have done to get things back on track because of the public health risks around COVID-19. It's important that we're not out boosting the economy, spending money. We have to stay indoors for the health of ourselves and our loved ones and our neighbors. So the government has to find a way to keep the economy afloat as we get through this while also not stimulating normal economic activity. Because of that, you've seen, you know, big sectors essentially have to shut down, hibernate. But on the other side, you're seeing some booms in in other sectors, especially around online deliveries, supermarkets, and the rest. I mean, our sense of supply and demand and what we want at the moment has completely flipped on his head. So the study is new, it's unprecedented, and it's changing by the day. And Lionel, just before we started recording, we were talking about how fast moving the situation is. Do you see the government playing catch up here and is it succeeding? There's no question that all governments are playing catch up, even the governments in Asia who've probably responded most effectively to the crisis. I'm thinking of countries like Taiwan that was very early on this, even in December, aware of what was going on in Wuhan, China. South Korea too, with their testing programs. But in general, I don't think any government, in particularly in, in what we call the West, in Europe, was aware of how virulent this virus was. And also, they weren't aware of the impact on healthcare systems. So they've been overwhelmed. And what they're really doing now is playing catch-up. And of course, that is definitely the case in what we now refer to as the epicentre of the crisis in America, where a city like New York is really struggling. You've got to get through that, through this, what might be called the acute phase, which Kate's been talking about, before you move into what I would call a chronic phase, where there's still a problem, but economic activity is still dislocated. Now, Kate, as the lockdown gets underway in the UK, I think a lot more voices this week has been talking about whether or not it's the right balance, whether or not we're risking choking off the economy for tackling this crisis. Do you think that we are choking off the economy? Is, Is it the case that the longer the lockdown, the more difficult the recovery will be? 
A lot of economists right now are talking about a V-curve shape recovery, which essentially means that the economy turns down very, very quickly, but there's also very rapid recovery. And that would imply that the lockdown could be weeks and not months, that we can get back to some kind of normal sense of economic activity, at least for most sectors in the near future. So you have that quick downturn, but then you have that quick recovery. And we just don't know yet if that's wishful thinking or not. The economics here and the public policy is very much following the public health guidance, as it should be at the moment. I think, you know, there's a real sense amongst everybody that the that no penny should be spared in order to save as many lives as possible. But there's no doubt that the longer it goes on for, the more economic repercussions that has. And as more businesses, you know, just can't risk taking on the debt and have to close, as more people lose their jobs, there will be an increasing number of questions as to the trade-offs here. And it's not money versus lives, it's lives versus lives, because economic activity is what makes us prosperous. It's, it's what makes us able to live much higher standards of living that we were able to do 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, and so on. So, I mean, those questions will probably get louder and louder, louder, as will many around the lockdown in terms of police behavior, you know, what is considered essential, uh, you know, really existential questions that three months ago, people in liberal democracies never thought they'd be asking themselves. Let, let me just come in with a little bit of ray of optimism here. I mean, three weeks ago, two to three weeks ago, we had an equity market crisis. I mean, just total collapse in equity markets in America, in Britain, Europe. We had a liquidity crisis, which means there wasn't enough credit flowing. We still have an oil price crisis, we have a demand crisis, which is what Kate's talking about. People are just not buying things because shops, everything else is shut down. But the official response has been quite effective. They've put a sort of safety net in, both in terms of central bank action, decisive action, pumping trillions of dollars and pounds into the market. So the, the equity markets have recovered somewhat, could be a change. Oil prices still very depressed. That's going to have an impact on the emerging markets around the world. But the banks have not stopped lending. So I think that the crisis management, I would give reasonable marks to, because it was first monetary and then fiscal. Now, what we've got to see is what plays out in the next six weeks. And as Kate's saying, how long this lockdown actually lasts. Lionel, I'm also interested in your opinion on Jeremy Corbyn's argument that this sort of situation and the government's stimulus proves that he won the argument. What do you make of that argument? And is it socialism that we're seeing at the moment? No, we're not seeing socialism. We're seeing survival economics. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, that, that's, uh, to uh, use an understatement, I mean, that's a cheap shot. It's got nothing to do with what he was talking about, which was a massive extension of public ownership in normal economic times. I mean, this is, this is going to be temporary. There may well be companies that require rescuing. It is extraordinary that a Chancellor of the Exchequer should be announcing a £350 billion package, which involves putting money in people's pockets. But if he hadn't done that, if Rishi Sunak had not done that, we would have had a depression plus. So I think that Jeremy Corbyn is completely wrong and he's comparing two different, fundamentally different set of circumstances. 
And Kate, critics from the left have also been piping up that austerity over the last decade have made our ability to deal with this much worse. For example, lack of investment in healthcare, they say. Do you think that's fair? Well, look, more money can always act as a band-aid on any situation, but it's rarely the only answer, especially when it comes to healthcare in the UK, because while austerity certainly affected different groups of people, especially those who perhaps have disabilities or those on welfare benefits, healthcare spending on the NHS throughout the coalition government and under these conservative governments has gone up in real terms every year. Healthcare spending has risen, I mean, especially in recent years, um, since Theresa May pledged 20 billion extra pounds to the NHS, that number's only gone up as well. So no, I don't think it's so simple as to blame this on austerity. Many of the issues that the NHS is experiencing right now are experienced in lots of other kinds of healthcare systems where they're just struggling to get access to certain kinds of tech like ventilators and PPE. It's an issue all over the world as supply chains strain. But look, this isn't socialism. We have to remember what socialism is is you know, seizing the means of production and bringing it into the state's hands. Well, we are looking at spending, I mean, countless of billions of pounds now on the COVID crisis. The majority of that is to make sure that there's going to be a private sector and a market economy at the end of this when we emerge on the other side. Business has very intentionally not been brought into the state's hands. It's being lent money to keep itself going so it can continue to function independently when we're out of this. The state is not directly topping up people's wages as actually it is in America. Here in the UK, they're trying desperately to make sure people can stay in private employment by topping up salaries. It's going to be very interesting at the end of this to see not just the different ways that healthcare systems responded around the world, but how governments decided to support the economy. And we're already seeing some of that distinction between the UK and the USA. Here in the UK, the chancellors decided to try to protect jobs and wages because hopefully if we get out of this fairly quickly, it will make it that much easier for people to go back to work immediately. They'll have jobs to go back to. But in the States, we're seeing an absolute spike. I mean, unprecedented spike in those applying for unemployment benefits, welfare benefits from just under 200,000 under a month ago to over 3 million people. It's just staggering. We haven't seen figures like it before. So we're not just comparing healthcare services is we're not just comparing money, we're also comparing public policy. And the assessment of that, I'm sure, will go on for a long time, but we're already seeing some of the implications now. Mm. And Lionel, in your piece for The Spectator this week, you take a look at what happens after this is all over. What about the economic repercussions that might come? You know, we've all heard that there's no magic money tree, but that seems to be being brought out now. So is there a cost to using that magic money tree? Well, there will be a a reckoning. You can't issue this amount of debt, which is what's happening in effect. Massive run-up in fiscal deficits, in addition to extraordinary monetary policy, flooding the markets. I think, first of all, you've got to ask the question, is there going to be a resurgence in inflation? Now, that was what everybody was worried about in 2008-9 during the global financial crisis, and it didn't actually happen. I'm not sure. Certainly, the projections before this were for still very low inflation going forward. Of course, when you've got this amount of debt being issued, you'd actually be quite glad of some inflation because it would wipe it off. That's the first point. Uh, I think the other point is... Will countries that in their initial in this initial acute phase they've gone their own way, everybody's sort of sauve qui peut, every person for themselves. 
But the question then is, do they come together? Is there an, a coordinated international response to spur recovery? And the question there has got to be directed mainly to Washington and Beijing, who are obviously at loggerheads over not just where this virus came from, but also uh, in general, US-China relations, Trump, Xi Jinping, protectionism, trade war have been in the basement. So uh, I think that's a big, big question. If they do come together, they understand that, that mutual advantage is in, in coordination, cooperation. Then we have a chance of coming out of this with still a cost, but a lot less cost. I think this, just the last point is we must not forget what's going on in countries like Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, these emerging market economies, often with big dollar borrowings, who are extremely vulnerable now. And if they go under, if emerging markets go under, which is one of the pillars of globalisation, then we're in real trouble. Kate, do you see signs of that global coming together at all? There certainly doesn't seem to be appetite for international cooperation right now. We're seeing more borders go up. We're seeing countries hunker down in their identity of the nation state, not wanting to share their PPE, their equipment. They're really focused on their own public policy. There's especially been issues in the European Union in terms of how the central bank will respond to the cries and the pleas of smaller EU countries that simply need more support right now. So no, we're we're not seeing international cooperation, but just as we are hoping that the economy can have a quick recovery. We're hoping that normal life can resume soon, that we don't have to live in this lockdown but can go back to daily activity. You would expect to see an uptick in international cooperation again. I certainly don't think in such a globalized world those days are behind us. The president has always been skeptical of working with both political foes and allies. I wouldn't expect that to change because of coronavirus. It was the same before. It's likely to be the same after. But more broadly, speaking, yes, you would think after such an unprecedented moment in our in our global history, in which we've all actually shared it together, certainly the health implications, that cooperation would be back in fashion soon. And Lionel, you know, hard as it is to predict what's going to happen afterwards, which you do very well in the piece this week, you know, you write that one big winner from all of this will be technology. Can you tell me about that? We're already seeing how technology is fundamentally changed how we're working right now, those who are working. I mean, the home working has gone off the scale. You're using technology as the grand enabler. And then there's technology in, in, in terms of big data. I mean, I think that it's inevitable that the public is going to say, look, if we need to stay safe and we're going to have to hand over data, more information, we'll do it. That's a bargain that the Asian countries have already done, we'll do it. I think that companies as well, like Google, Facebook, Amazon, that are hugely well capitalized, were already predominant in their area, big the fangs. These companies will probably acquire others, they'll pick up others, they're gonna be big winners. So when we talk about globalization, which as a lot of people have saying, it's, it's under threat, it's going to be reversed. I think that there, there will be certain moves to say, well, look at global supply chains in using technology for real-time supply, etc., of goods. That may come under scrutiny. People may want to bring things closer to home, 
reshoring, but they will still rely on technology. There is no way that this virus, in my view, is going to slow the development of AI. It may even accelerate it. And I'm fascinated to hear what you both think about, you know, Lionel, your point that the trade-off between privacy and safety might be one that people are willing to make. Are you worried about that? We're already in a position where both governments, the state and the big companies, have hoovered up vast amounts of our data and put put data relating to our consumer habits, preferences, all this is out there. And in some views, I'm thinking of Ms. Zuboff and her book on the surveillance state. The surveillance state is, in many ways, I think, is, is here already. It's likely to increase. But as I say, what this virus has done is put public health front and centre. And if it's a life and death issue, which it is, for thousands and thousands of people right now, I think they'll recognise where the trade-off is. And they're not going to say, we're not going to hand over our data. Kate? People do seem increasingly comfortable with trading their data for so-called free stuff. I think there's broad understanding that your Facebook account is free or the Wi-Fi that you get in an airport is free, not because it doesn't have a cost to it, but because that cost is the information that you hand over. So would an app in the future that could, say, track whether or not you've had a virus or been in contact with a virus face mass backlash, especially if we thought it could save lives? Maybe not, but I, I do think it would be scrutinized, and rightfully so. But more broadly, I'm not convinced that COVID-19 is going to get us to trade more of our freedoms for more security. I think it could actually have the opposite effect. As we've all been on lockdown, we've been able to reflect on how valuable day-to-day freedom is. We understand that these draconian measures may be necessary for a short period of time to help save lives, but I don't think anybody wants to see them continue. Actually, there's been real pushback on those who have overstepped. People are not happy that local police forces are using drones to track those taking long walks who are obviously self-isolating and not doing anyone any harm. There has been serious pushback on those trying to say that chocolate Easter eggs are non-essential and shouldn't be sold in shops. People don't like being told what they can buy or what they have to do or how they have to live their lives. And as we're in lockdown, we're being more and more reminded of that. So I actually think when we come out on the other side, we're going to value those civil liberties more, not less. Yeah, I want to put on record uh, very clearly and unequivocally that I am pro-chocolate egg. (laughs) (laughs) Kate and Lionel, thank you very much. And next, while we get to the end of week two of national lockdown in the UK, Sweden is doing things a little bit differently. Frederick Eriksson writes about the totalitarian slippery slope that the West may be on, and he joins me down the line now from Uppsala. Also joining us is the political scientist Yasha Munk, a contributing writer to The Atlantic and author of People vs. Democracy. So Frederick, can you tell us what life's like in Sweden at the moment? Well, life in Uppsala and in Sweden, I think, is pretty normal in the sense that I wake up in the morning, I take my kids to school. I'm usually a home worker myself, so there's no sort of big difference for me uh, in the sense that I, I, like everyone else that can, works from home and try to keep as much distance as possible we can. But uh, cafes are open, restaurants are open, at least those that still can economically survive, given, given sort of the tough situation that most of the places are empty. But you can, you can still go out and have a meal outside. You can go play laser game. You can bowl. And for this weekend, I'm, I'm planning 
to be at a football cup where my oldest kid is going to play. So in that sense, life, life is pretty normal. But that has to be sort of put in the general context where Sweden is like every other society in the sense that our entire occupation is now with the virus and our ability to uh, scale up our hospital capacity and our intensive care units, our intensive care beds radically. Everyone is totally focused on 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 sort of trying to avoid that the healthcare sector more generally is going to be overstretched, uh, not just with COVID-19 cases, but with uh, also other type of, of illnesses and injuries. So, for instance, ski resorts are now voluntarily closing down uh, over the Easter break in order to avoid that people come into hospitals with a injured knee or they've broken their hips or any sort of stuff like that. So li- li- life is beginning to be very different. And, you know, the Swedish strategy has got a lot of headlines. Is it fair to say that it's going for something along the lines of accepting herd immunity, the sort that British officials flirted with? I I don't think so. I don't think herd immunity is the strategy. The state epidemiologist, uh, Anders Stignell, who appears on television virtually every hour (laughs) during the day, he's been very clear, (laughs) as have sort of the government and others been, that herd immunity is not the strategy, but it may be that we will end up uh, having a situations where uh, a majority of the population will get immune. The strategy for the time being is is literally the same strategy as we have in other countries, which, which is to flatten the curve and to avoid that we overstretch healthcare resources and avoid that we end up in a situation like the one we have seen in some countries where the healthcare system isn't capable of taking care of patients that are coming in. So that is the focus. Yeah, you're right that other European countries seems to have gone down the route of totalitarianism. Well, my my sense is that what I've written in the piece in this week's Potator is that this is the first time when I can begin to imagine totalitarianism in the West. And I know, of course, that I'm I'm, I'm using a very strong word here. My worry is that I've seen so many governments jumping into a total lockdown situation very, very quickly without giving much effort or much consideration to trying to find a different strategy for getting people to accept what is needed now in order to make societies to work and that we don't overload our healthcare systems. What I see in Sweden as well as in many other countries in Europe is sort of this new single truth type of mentality where it's difficult to have an open conversation about what is the right strategy to choose. Like in the rest of of Europe, the debate in Sweden is very much sort of debated along the lines of everyone being panicked, at least those that write in the media and appear on television. And they want to go for very, very strong lockdown measures, which will have the consequence of severely restricting the liberties of people to live their lives. And my point is basically this, that, you know, if we so easily can jump into that type of society when we're confronted with a pandemic, it's going to be very easy for politicians to whip up the same mentality in the future again and sort of get people under conditions which we sort of just a few months ago would have found intolerable. And the learning experience in the West right now may be that you can actually lock up your people put them what is not a house arrest, but it's in confinement and they're going to accept it. And that worries me a lot. 
Yasha, does it worry you? Well, what worries me is Frederick's deep irresponsibility in, frankly, padding, paddling irresponsible lies. Look, we're in a situation in which we have to make very, very hard trade-offs. And I agree with him that what many societies have agreed to do is difficult to stomach. As Angela Merkel said, you know, she is somebody who fought for freedom of movement for a long time, who lived under a regime that restricted it in radical ways. And she did not find it easy to restrict freedom of movement in any way in this kind of situation. And I think it's a perfectly acceptable choice to say this value is so important to us that we are willing to risk the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. That would be respectable. We can have a debate about that. I'd probably come out on the other side. I think temporary restrictions to our freedoms are worth it if we're going to save a lot of people. But I respect somebody who ends up on the other side of the debate. What I frankly don't respect is somebody who isn't honest about the trade-offs. So let me say a little bit about that. Frederick just said, well, herd immunity may be where we end up. According to conservative estimates of what that would mean, it would mean in a country like Britain about 500,000 deaths. And by the way, a lot of people whose lung capacity may be at least temporarily or even permanently damaged from having been sick from the disease on another order of magnitude still. Uh, in Sweden, it would mean about 60 to 100,000 deaths. Again, speaking conservatively, I think he should be honest about that when he says, oh, that may be where we end up. In the same way, in you know the article for your uh, August publication, he says, you know, the Swedish healthcare system can cope. I heard that in the early days in Germany. I heard that in the early days in Britain. I would love to know uh, what makes the Swedish healthcare system so uniquely different from every other healthcare system uh, in the world, from the excellent healthcare system we have in New York City with world-class hospitals that are now buckling under the pressure of a coronavirus. In fact, I had a little bit of fun going on a Swedish news website two minutes before this podcast. It didn't take particularly long at all. And what is the leading headline on Dagens Nyheter, one of the big newspapers in Sweden? It is that intensive care sites are running out in Stockholm right now. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think you're spurning quite a lot of nonsense now. I mean, I'm sort of what I'm reporting in my article is that I'm not saying that herd immunity may be the end station. I'm reporting what the Swedish state epidemiologist is saying. He's not saying this is going to happen in two months, in six months, in two years. It's going to take a very, very long time. It's just that no one at this point knows. And we are all listening to various types of speculations and the good scientists which are out there. They are at least acknowledging that they are speculating. How do you find good scientists? Is it if they agree with you, they're a good scientist? Well, maybe being a state epidemiologist makes them a good scientist, Yasha. Well, the state epidemiologist in Britain uh, seemed to uh, take the herd immunity approach for a little while. And then new evidence became available. And the government rightly changed its mind because it realized what would be involved. But I mean, my, my point here is that I'm not advocating a strategy for herd immunity, nor is the Swedish government. So let's get rid of that sort of fantasy from the start win. But you're advocating a strategy, the logical outcome of which is herd immunity. If you look at the numbers in Sweden for the last days, they are uh, growing exponentially, as indeed they have in every country around the world that hasn't instituted radical measures of social distancing. So on May 29th, there's 253 new cases. On May 30th, there's 328 new cases. On May 31st, there's 407 new cases. 
and on April 1st, there's 512 new cases. So the number of new cases has doubled in four days. And Yasha, I'm interested in your opinion on this because you're, you're a staunch defender of democracy. Do you worry that, you know, the tranche of illiberal policies being rolled out across the West might push out the cordon sanitaire what's acceptable for civil liberties to be traded in the future? Absolutely. I'm, I'm mostly worried about governments abusing this moment in order to concentrate power in their own hands. And that is certainly happening in countries like Hungary. Um, that's why I think that any restrictions that we now place on people's liberties have to fulfill three criteria. The first is that they uh, have to be subject to democratic and where appropriate judicial oversight. The second is that they have to be temporary so that the parliaments that exercise that judicial oversight have to renew these powers at regular intervals and can easily refuse to do that when they are no longer warranted by conditions uh, on the ground. And the third, of course, is that all of those measures have to be strictly tailored, narrowly tailored towards actually fighting this disease and saving lives. Frederick, final word to you. I'm worried about what the long-term consequences of locking people up in their homes are going to be for democracy. I'm wondering what people like Yasha, who advocate this particular strategy, what will come next? What will you do if, gov- sort of if people begin to rebel against the lockdown measures now? What if people uh, start to organize a public demonstration against government policy? What are you going to do? Are you going to send in the police? Are you going to send in the military? What if people en masse wants to go out and jog or go for a bicycling tour over the weekend? What are you going to do then? Yasha? I thought this was his last words. Look, um, you have to take uh, each moment as it comes. Uh, I certainly think that, uh, you know, you can deal with uh, violations of appropriate rules through fines and other civic penalties, which appear to be pretty effective. Um, I think if there is a protest against government policy, that may be appropriate for an exception. Obviously, the the danger of making forms of political protest illegal is different from a general guidance uh, for people on a temporary basis to stay at home because uh, this disease will overwhelm our healthcare system if they don't. So the trade-offs are hard, and we have to take them step by step, thinking each time whether a restriction, as I was saying, is strictly necessary to save lives, whether it's temporary and whether it's subject to judicial oversight. Those aren't easy trade-offs, and I'm not claiming that the sacrifices we are making aren't tough, that, that, that I don't worry about them. And as I was saying from the beginning, I respect people who might come out on the other side. I think there's a respectable argument to be made that those liberties are important enough and the dangers of locking people uh, into their homes are big enough that we should tolerate the death toll that would result in letting this disease spread unchecked. But we've got to be honest about what that would look like. We've got to be honest about the massive death toll, the overburdening of our healthcare system, and all the dangers of a breakdown of public order that would come from that. Yasha and Frederick, thanks very much. And last, the explorer Jeff Wilson has just returned from a two-month expedition in the Antarctic alone. He writes an explorer's notebook in this week's issue, and he joins me down the line now. Jeff, to start off, can you tell us about your mission? What were you trying to do? I was trying to break the longest solo polar distance record. So a great explorer by the name of Mike Horn, a South African Swiss explorer, 
did a phenomenal journey back in 2017 where he crossed from one side of Antarctica through the South Pole and then out 5,100-kilometre journey, solo unsupported. So for me, being unsupported was really important, but also trying to break that distance record. Um, now, the only way I could do that was to cross a feature called Dome Argus, which had never been crossed before, and that ended up being the single biggest challenge of that journey. And you write about your kite setup. Can you explain to listeners who might not have ever seen a giant kite, you know, what, what, how did you do it? What was your equipment? Yeah, I, I've probably covered more of the planet using kite power when you add up my ocean miles, my desert miles and my ice miles than any other human before or since. But basically what you're using is a, is a big sheet of canvas shaped like a kite with strings anywhere from 25 to 80 metres long connected to a hook on your waist. And that, that pulls you on skis or in the desert it was pulling me on, on buggies or, or in the ocean you're on, a, on like a, a wakeboard basically. So it allows me to increase my daily distance. So you're still getting that incredible pounding through your body. Every kilometre that you ski, you're feeling, but you're covering, instead of 10 kilometres in a day or 20 kilometres in a day, you're covering 200 to 300 on a really big day. And you write about the incredible cold that you experienced. Can you tell us what that was like? Yeah, I've never done a journey where I've headed upwind. So all of my journeys in the polar region have been wind at your back and the great thing with wind at your back when you're traveling 10 knots speed in a 20 knot wind your body's getting half as cold as it would do if you were just standing still so that's phenomenal but when you turn around and you're going 10 knots into a 20 knot breeze your body's getting the net effect of a 30 knot wind chill and when the air temperature is minus 45 that means your wind chill i forget but it's close to minus 90 celsius so None of your skin on your face survives freezing, your hands freeze, your feet freeze. So the first 1,700 kilometres of that journey was all upwind. The wind chill never got above minus 70 Celsius on the warmest day and your hands and feet and face were just copping a beating. So that was arguably, I would say, the most toughest journey I've ever done. It just seemed to go on forever and ever and ever. And I remember when I got to the pole of inaccessibility and then could turn side onto the wind, it was uh, one of the best days of my life. <laughs> and you must have been incredibly lonely to do it all by yourself for two months. Yeah, I, I always struggle with the solitude. I, I know that going into it because I'm a family man. I'm, I've got you know a lot of good mates. I love a good beer and a chat. I'm not a solitary sort of guy. Anyway, so it's always been an issue. I always struggle around day 10 to day 14 to really get my mental stability. Once I've been solo for about two weeks, then I stabilise and I become a new person. I could probably go for a couple of hundred days without seeing someone, but that first 14 days is rough. And uh, I always say that you travel with two wolves, the wolf of fear and the wolf of loneliness. And at the beginning of a solo polar journey, they're just pups, but if you feed them too much and let them get bigger, they can consume you by the end of the journey. So uh, this one, I felt the wolves uh, were bigger than ever. Mm. And you talk to your wife on the phone. How how big of a role does she play in supporting you to do this? And also, what does she make of you going away for so long? Well, we, we often get this question, <laughs> Cindy, because it, it's such an unusual marriage. We have 
Sarah's very adventurous in her own right, but she 100% understands my mindset, my psyche, and she knows when I'm done, I'm generally not done. So she knows if I ring and say, listen, I'm physically done in, which I did three times on this journey. On day two, I had a breakdown after I froze my hand. Day 41, I had a breakdown on the side of Dome Argus when it just seemed impossible. And day day 56, I had a breakdown uh, after two hours in the worst crevassed ice of my adventure career. Each and every time, she just gently pieces me back together and lets me see that I have more within me. And usually the advice is, listen, eight hours sleep and a good solid feed and things will look different. And uh, that does generally happen. She's a, a phenomenal supporter. And she's what I call my believer. You know, anyone going into a hostile environment needs a believer. And if you don't have a believer, you probably shouldn't be going in there. She's my believer and has pieced me back through many a journey. Mm, and I suppose the burning question, I, I mean, I certainly have on my mind, maybe many listeners will as well, is why? <laughs> why would you do it? Oh, it's an absolute why. And I, I think there are just some of us that are curious, you know, that curiosity killed the cat kind of thing. We, you know, we need to see what's around the next bend in the river, what's over the next ridge. Uh, what's on the other side of the forest you know for me it was I wonder if it's possible to break the 5,100 kilometer mark is it possible to cross Dome Argus and get into the wind flow that would get me all the way home do I have what it takes to to withstand the journey and are my navigational skills and my kiting skills enough to do this you know this dream that I've set out and uh, amazingly you know, it was all yeses to those questions, but not without a lot of soul searching and, and, you know, plumbing the very depths of what's humanly possible from an endurance and a survival point of view. Uh, but, you know, to some people it's sheer madness. To others, they understand it. That burning question is always there. Why do we explore? Why do we cross rivers, seas, mountains, forests? Just some of us are curious, I think. And Jeff, in these crazy times, lots of us are maybe doing less socialising than we normally would. So do you have any tips for being alone? Yeah, I, I think, you know, you can't find out about yourself without spending time alone. And, and our whole society over the last 50 years has made it so that we don't have those still quiet times. You put headphones in your ears, you play music, you watch devices, we listen to movies... And it's all leading to uh, a lack of time where you find yourself. And a lot of us just don't know who we are. And the loneliness is not often a sadness. It's, it's a scaredness to actually spend time with yourself. So I would encourage everyone doing isolation or feeling isolated to just soak into it, ease into it like you ease into a hot bath after a hard game of rugby or any sports you're doing, um, ease into it spend time and enjoy yourself start to love yourself and be kind to yourself and understand that you are the best version of yourself when you really understand who you are and this time of isolation is all about finding yourself so uh, enjoy it well that's a very positive note to end on thanks very much jeff and that's it for this week you can read all the pieces discussed in this episode in this week's magazine as well as more from james ball on the statistics of coronavirus David Rose on Extinction Rebellion's coronavirus strategy, as well as Bishop Stephen Cottrell, the incoming Archbishop of York. 
And thanks so much to all of you who wrote in to say how much you enjoyed last week's audio reads with Douglas Murray, Tanya Gold and Mark Mason. There'll be another episode on Spectator Radio this Saturday with Matthew Paris, Lionel Shriver and Isabel Hardman. So do search for Spectator Radio wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. (laughs) 